Welcome to the Idea Climbing Podcast. Today, my guest is Frank King, a suicide prevention speaker and trainer who is also a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. He's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. In this episode, we discuss the correlation between stand-up comedy and entrepreneurship, Frank's story of being on the road for 2,629 stand-up comedy nights in a row, which is just over seven years, and more golden nuggets of advice. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for being here, Frank. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I, I'm, when I say I'm happy to be here, I mean I'm happy to be in my house because two weeks ago, yesterday, the wildfire came within 1.25 miles of our where I'm sitting right now, and the you know I got the, the alert on my phone: level three, get out now! Don't take anything with you. You know, it's like go because the fire is that close and it moves that fast and well i had to be downtown 25 minutes away when three because we were at one when i left home to go to my doctor's appointment they skipped over two which is get set <laughs> went right to three go and so i had to drive 25 miles home because we have 11 cats and i i'm like the marine corps we never leave anybody behind so i'm not going to leave 11 cats to die in a fire and a friend of mine said, but you could have, you could have died in the fire. I said, like, I've been trying to kill myself for 40 years. A, B, I'm not scared of dying. C, I'm not leaving 11 cats to die by fire. And D, if the fire got in the fire, fire's licking my toes because I have chronic suicidal ideation, meaning I can end my life anytime. I've, I've crossed that barrier. Uh, I have a handgun. They, I would never have burned to death. I would have shot myself first. Because I'm, you know, it's so it's, it's kind of my superpower, sadly, <laughs> you know, if, if you're suicidal, you're, you know, rushing back into a fire is not a big deal. So uh, anyway, that would make a big difference with the, dealing with the fire. Right, right. Oh Came back gosh. together. <laughs> so what? anyway, I'm happy to be here, Mark, really happy to be in this house. That's awesome. Let's, uh, let's, uh, this is such a good story. I'm, I, don't usually stutter over my own words. It's just there's so much to talk about here. And it's such a different story. Why don't we start at the beginning when your big idea was to be a comedian in the fourth grade? Yeah, I always said there was something about me that was different. You know, I I, I never couldn't put my finger on it. In the fourth grade, um, I told a joke in front of the entire class. And they laughed. And the teacher was hysterical. And I I had these glasses that I had to wear. And this is 19 mid 60s. And so there were no fashion frames. For girls, it was cat eye glasses, a couple of colors. For guys, it was Buddy Holly black plastic Ray Bans, which are very fashionable now, but back then. I mean, I, and I wore bandlon shirts, polyester pants, hush puppies, and these glasses like a body condom. I'm never going to get anybody pregnant because no woman's ever going to get close to me if I can't <laughs> continue to dress like this. So I hated the glasses. And so my teacher decided the best way to make me wear my glasses, because I couldn't see the board, was to get me in the front of the room, have me turn away from the class, put my glasses on, turn back to the class. Everybody sees it all at once. And you sort of, you know, let's, let's pull the Band-Aid off. So she gets me in front of the class, puts my glasses on. I turn back to the class and she looks down. And she goes, see, you look intelligent. And I looked up and said, my first joke, 
Yes, that would explain the laughter. And she was hysterical. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to be a comedian. Fast forward 12th grade, three years of drama, no good parts, always in the chorus, no spoken lines. And it occurred to me if I did stand up, I could write, direct, produce, and star my own show every night. And it just so happens, there was a talent show, second semester, senior year. I thought, I'm going to do stand-up. So I had this writing flow one night. One night, wrote the whole thing out and got up at the talent show. And nobody had ever done stand-up before. And I won. And so I told my mama, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. She goes, well, son, she's big into education. You are going to college. I don't care what you do when you get done. You could be a goat herder for all I care, but you, son, are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, and then my college and high school sweetheart and I moved to San Diego, an insurance company I went to work for transferred us there and got married. Uh, big mistake. We had nothing in common, but you know what they say, Mark, opposite to track. She mm -hmm. was pregnant. I wasn't. Um, and so, and she was four square against comedy. She wanted me to be an insurance guy because her dad was, or her grandfather was. And so San Diego has a branch of the world famous comedy store that's up on sunset in LA. And every time I drove by there, I felt this, <laughs> you know, this pull. And how did you I, deal with that? With somebody that you're married to that's against it? Because I'm th sure there's people listening that are thinking whether they want to be a stand up comedian, start their, you know, a dream that's not a normal career path. How did you navigate those waters? Well, and I, by the way, I have spoken to a number of, um, entrepreneurial college classes where they're teaching entrepreneurship and I say to the students look I'm going to give you some unconventional advice something probably nobody else is going to tell you if you want to be an entrepreneur and you've got an idea here's some things you need to do right now you need to a tell your significant other girlfriend boyfriend whatever right this minute I have this idea this is what I'm going to do I'm going to be an entrepreneur so they they can either buy in or not I try to tell my girlfriend then my wife at the point this point in the story over pizza at brother's pizza in raleigh north carolina i'm going to be a comedian she thought i was joking so what i tell the entrepreneurial class is look make sure you have them look you square in the eye and say look i'm not kidding this is what i'm going to do are you in or are you out so it's fair to you it's fair to them i said when you graduate don't buy a new car don't buy a new condo move back into your parents basement <laughs> Oh. save your money because it's going to be expensive and you need to keep your expenses as low as possible. So anyway, uh, and the problem was I married my high school slash college sweetheart. We've been dating since eighth, ninth grade. I mean, when you get done with college and you've been dating that long, it's either break up or get married. You really don't, you know, it's the fish or cut bait. And, and so she didn't want to continue dating. She wasn't going to live with me, which was my, choice of options, you know, at least with an option to buy. And so she said, I'm, you know, marrying me or I'm leaving. That's how I got engaged. And when we got to San Diego and I began to make noises about doing comedy, she put the kibosh on it. Oddly, if I said, look, I want to go back to school and get my MBA, which would have taken at least as much time as comedy and probably more, she would have been all in because you can see at the end of the day at graduation that the MBA is going to raise your, you know, your salary or, you know, whatever. 
But comedy, she just couldn't wrap her mind around how people made money telling jokes. And I, I knew in my heart that that was where I belong. So, um, and this is a subject of my fourth TEDx talk, suicide, the secret of my success, dead man talking. I realized in 1984, that early 84, that it, I was depressed and suicidal. It runs in my family. And that if I didn't change something and quickly, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My second thought was very empowering, which was, well, let's see, I could divorce my wife, quit my job in insurance, which is a great business, but not for me. Um, I could try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So wow. <laughs> that's, that's how I got into comedy. And it's the power there, I think, is because I had absolutely nothing to lose. Stay put, die. Try comedy, might work, or all else fails, kill myself. And I've met a goodly number of entrepreneurs, uh, entertainers, and comedians who had the same basic thought process. They're doing something, living a life they know they don't belong there. And they've got a dream, and they think they belong over there. And they realize, if I don't do something quickly, I'm going to kill myself. What the heck? So how do you get out of that? If someone's well, just depressed, much less suicidal, how did you, what do you do to get out of that mode, that, that mood, I should say? Well, I, I separated and divorced my wife. I quit my insurance job and I started going to open mic night to do stand up comedy. And, and I did my first open mic five minutes and it went very well. And inside my head, I heard I'm home. Second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how that's going to happen. Matter of fact, I thought about doing a keynote since then for people in a similar situation called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because if I'd known, Mark, how difficult it is to make a full-time living doing stand-up comedy, I might not have given full-time comedy a shot, but I had mm -hmm. no idea. I just, you know, I just knew in my heart that's where I belonged and figured, you know, the universe would, would open up, uh, everything would fall in line. And, 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 and it, as it turns out, a year later, I had uh, won a local contest, funniest person in San Diego at the improv, booked 10 weeks on the road doing stand up. This is like, um, this is 85, beginning of the big comedy club boom. There were comedy clubs everywhere. And I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, I'm going on the road to do stand up. You want to come along for the ride? And she said, yes. And so I said, great. So we put everything we couldn't fit into my little tiny Dodge Colt into storage, mm. gave up the apartment, the jobs, and we hit the road day after Christmas, 85. And we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. And how long is that? Seven years? Seven years and change. Okay. And worked with, worked with, and back then you lived with other comics in a three bedroom condo. They called it a comedy condo. Every club had a comedy condo. So Rosie O'Donnell, Alan DeGeneres, Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Foxworthy, Ron White, you know, pretty much Adam Sandler, Kevin James, anybody who's, you know, famous now, I probably worked with them somewhere along the way. Um, and because I have a work ethic, unusual for most comedians, because people don't choose comedy, Mark because they have a great work ethic. I mean, you're working 45 minutes a night. Um, that's not really, you know, and most of the guys I worked with, uh, you know, sat around, smoked weed and watched golf channel all day long. Mm -hmm. And I was busy booking myself out as far as I, when I, when I left comedy to work in radio in April of 93, I had a, I had a year booked ahead. I mean, I had a year and I canceled it a quarter at the time because radio is such an iffy business. 
but yeah, I, I, I kept us booked and on the road for seven years and change. And then I got an opportunity to do radio. Uh, they were hiring morning show DJs. They're hiring comics as morning show DJs in the mid nineties. And in my old hometown, I had mentioned to them as I passed through a couple times to work the club there. Hey, listen, if you guys ever need a morning DJ, um, I, I'd love to come back home. So they offered me a job, came back home and I took a number one morning show and I drove it to number six in 18 months. Yes. <laughs> uh, I didn't just drive it into the ground. I drove it into middle earth. Oh. And then the clubs began to close about that time. I thought, well, you know what? I'm really, I got a clean act. I'm going to jump to corporate comedy from the bar room to the boardroom, from club comedy to corporate comedy. And I made that jump to the rubber chicken circuit, you know, doing shows after dinner at an awards banquet for an association. And I rode that for about 10 years and it was crazy. Um, 2007, my best year ever. I made, I grossed over $200,000 telling jokes. I, I did 96 shows that year. And I'll, by Christmas, I was just, but over $200,000 just telling jokes. And then came the recession. And the business dropped off 80%. And um, I had a lot of negative cash flow and some rental properties that we had. And I couldn't keep up with the mortgage where we were living. So we, de we declared Chapter 7 bankruptcy lost everything and that's when i found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like oh so my God. the upside of the suicidality was it's really the secret of my success in comedy because i was able to make that jump without you know because i did you know if i stayed put i was going to die if if i did comedy well there's a chance i'll make it uh, but if not i can still kill myself so so i came very close i had time place method chosen but uh, spoiler alert for those listening to the podcast, I didn't pull the trigger, mm -hmm. uh, which gets a nervous laugh from the audience. Should we be laughing at this? Okay. And my follow-up joke is a friend of mine who'd never heard me say that out loud was at a keynote, came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, true story. So um, I, I had, when I sold insurance, Mark, we back in the – See, I graduated in 79. Back then, the, it was the height of the sort of, um, the, you know, the motivational speakers, the, you know, the, the icons in the business, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy. And insurance companies are big on, me, big on meetings, big on motivation. So I saw them all because San Diego is a big market. So I watched those guys, Zig and those guys, and I'm thinking, I could do that if I just had something to teach somebody. I got nothing. So... When I, when I came so close to dying by suicide, began to look at my family history of depression and suicide, I thought, you know what? I could speak on suicide prevention. And then the challenge at that point was rebranding because everybody who had booked me thought of me as a good, clean, corporate comic. Well, how Nobody did you make had, that leap? Well, that's when my wife goes do a TEDx. And I said, what the hell's a TEDx? <laughs> really? Yeah. And just by chance, I got a, an email with, a, with an invitation to apply, not to do, but to apply to do a TEDx in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so I thought, what the heck? So I submitted and I had an audition and, and I, I actually flew to Vancouver for the audition. Mm -hmm. This is 2014, I guess. And I did, I, I did it on purpose. I could have done it by Zoom, 
or probably Skype back then. But I wanted the impact of my story because it's gruesome. Um, because it, it, the the TEDx is going to be all about suicide. Um, it runs in my family. People are probably wondering at this moment, hold on, a comedian talking about depression and suicide? How does that work? Well, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And that was the story that I wanted them to hear from me in person. So I said, I told them, they give you five minutes ago. Well, my, I told them how my mom's mom my mother couldn't reach her, so she drove over to the house, and my grandmother had taken care of everything. You know, she'd um, she'd written the checks for the bills and stamped them and addressed them. She'd pinned her will to her house coat so my mother could find it, and she turned on the old gas stove, blew out the pile of light, sat down, and wrote a suicide note, which I still have. And I said, then when my great aunt, my mother couldn't reach my great aunt about four years later, um, five years later. She bundled me into the car at four years old. We drove over to my aunt's place. We walk in, we had a key, walk in. Nothing's out of place except on the kitchen counter is all the food that should be in the old lock type refrigerator. Butter, milk, eggs, cheese. Well, my mother didn't figure out what had happened or what had gone on. So I'm holding onto a skirt like this. And by the way, if, if you're easily triggered suicide stories, now you might want to mute for about 30 seconds. I'm holding onto my mother's skirt my mother walks over and opens the old Loctite, Loctite refrigerator, the kind, if you're inside, you can't get out once you go in. She opens the door while my great aunt had crawled in there to, to kill herself. And then apparently changed her mind and tried to claw her way out. So she was all broken nails, bloody, you know, face contorted at last, whatever. My mom opens the refrigerator door. My great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor. We're face to face on the floor. And so the, uh, the, the curation team that's hearing this story, they are like this. Oh, yeah, this wide-eyed. Yeah, and they were supposed to give me a, a signal at four minutes that I had one minute to go. Well, at that moment, the, the little alarm goes off. Ding, ding, ding. I said, is that four minutes? And the young woman looks really embarrassed. She goes, no, that was five minutes. <laughs> so, she was so transfixed, she didn't even watch the clock. And so I, I came home, and they said, look, uh, we'd like they call me so we'd like to have you on stage at the tedx uh robin williams had died in between the time i auditioned and the event and they said look you're a comedian suicidal if you'll mention robin williams then you're welcome to come up and and do your tedx and just so happened i worked with him a couple of nights at the comedy store in la jolla so i said i was already going to include robin because such a high profile comic suicide mm -hmm. so and then once that posted, my wife's about to push play. And I go, look, stop, don't hit play yet. There's half a dozen things you don't know that I want to tell you that I don't, I don't want you to learn for the first time watching the video. Because nobody in my family, my friends and my wife, had any idea I was depressed and suicidal. I came out on stage at 56 years old in front of a TEDx crowd mm -hmm. and told the world, I'm, I'm nuttier than a squirrel turd. and that's how I made the branding as that was the, that was how I began to rebrand from funny speaker to speaker who was funny. Well, with the corporate gigs and the comedy gigs and di the different things at this stage, if someone's listening and they want to, you know, be aware and help relatives or close ones with depression, prevent suicide, what tips do you have for them? What do you talk about when it comes to the how to part of this? 
Well, what, what, what I tell people is, here's the good news. You can make a difference, you can save a life, and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here, and that's start a conversation. Because on average, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice and interrupt. Nine out of 10 people who are suicidal in the last week, week leading up to the attempt give hints, verbal, nonverbal, behavioral, uh, direct, indirect. So eight out of 10 are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints they're thinking about it. So that means all those people want somebody to notice and interrupt. So what you have to do is you have to know the signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, signs of depression, um, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Um, don't, 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 don't take joy in the social activities. They begin to withdraw things they used to really enjoy socially. They begin to withdraw or move for that matter. Um, uh, here's one that's even obvious on zoom, which is, uh, they let their personal hygiene go. You know, there's Zoom casual, as I am today, no tie, no jacket. And then there's, you know, um, hair's dirty, haven't shaved, clothes are dirty, because they just can't drag themselves out of bed to, to the bathroom to shave or to the washing machine to do a load. So that those are are, are some of the top, that's top four signs, I guess, that they have that live with depression. And then the signs that they may be suicidal, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying, it appears as a theme in whatever their artwork is, music, writing, whatever. Um, gathering the means, stockpiling medication, or buying a gun, getting their personal affairs in order, including giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the person they go to when they're gone. So if you've got a friend you think is depressed and they show up at your house with their favorite Xbox and hand it to you, uh, or worse, if they have a pet and they begin to give away a pet or pets, they're just making sure that everybody's going to be taken care of. All the furry friends are going to be taken care of when they're gone. And here's a counterintuitive one that's very dangerous. If the person you love or work with or go to school with has been depressed forever, and then all of a sudden they are happy for no apparent reason. Well, you're happy because they're happy. Finally. Problem is they may have chosen time, place, method, and they're happy because they know their pain is finite. That's what a lot of people who are neurotypical don't understand about suicide. They say, why did he kill himself? Why did he want to kill himself? Chances are he didn't want to kill himself. Chances are he or she just wanted to end the pain. It's all about ending the pain. So that's what I teach my audiences, signs and symptoms, depression, thoughts of suicide, and then what to say or what not to say. Now, don't say if they're depressed, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Uh, you say, look, I, I'm here for you, and I mean it. Um, I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that mental, mental uh, depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And then you have to ask this question. If, you, if they are, for, for in, in fact, depressed, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can it's a difficult question to ask, but it's very important to ask. Now, there's an old wives' tale that you should never mention the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed, and I love the reasoning. It might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't I think mm -hmm. of that? Trust me, it's crossed their mind. Now, what if they are, uh, are suicidal? Then the next question is, well, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, you know, time, place, method, you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or for younger people, there's now a text line. Text the word help to 741-741. There'll be somebody roughly the same age on the other end texting back. 
because younger people tend to be more forthcoming in text. The um, question comes up, oh, by the way, if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, you call the suicide prevention lifeline, and the volunteer will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. Now, the question always comes up when you call the cops. If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, then you have to dial 911 knowing that if the police are involved and they believe the person is actively suicidal, they'll take, they'll arrest them yeah. and take them in front of a judge and try to get an involuntary detention order. And three day, uh, three day, all expenses paid stay at a lovely mental health gated community with mm -hmm. no strings or belt. So that's basically, that's, that's my 45 minute keynote in you know, the, the cliff notes version, but that's, that's what I teach. And, and, Generally, I have a I have major depressive disorder, which is depression, relatively common, and then I have this chronic suicidality, which means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. A couple of years ago, one of my cars broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden: get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. Every time I've spoken, except once, there's been at least one person in the audience who had that condition did not know it had a name, thought they were just some kind of freak because of the way they, you know, their brain worked. And the relief, they usually line up afterwards and say, I've got that. I didn't know it had a name. I, I can't believe I'm not alone. That's my why. That's why I stick around for one thing, because I, I'm sort of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown how these, what these people's lives would be like if I weren't there to go, hey, you're not alone. Uh, and 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 steer them off the path to suicide best I can. So that's that's basically what I do and why I do it and how I do it. And it's you know it's 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 you know it's I believe it's a it's a gift and a, a, and a curse. The gift is I can speak frankly about it, pardon the pun, and openly about it, which gives other people permission to give voice to their feelings. Most of my clients say to me when I get there, look we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide because most people don't talk about depression and suicide unless you bring it up. And then almost everybody's got a story. And sometimes there's eight people lined up after I get done with the general Q and a with individual questions. I always plan an extra half an hour to hang around to answer individual questions. Mm -hmm. When I did my fourth Ted talk, suicide, the secret of my success. One of the other speakers said to me, well, you're in the first flight of speakers. Are you going to leave when you get done? Can't leave. Why not? I go watch what happens when we break for lemonade and cookies. Sure enough, eight people lined up yep. with a question. You know, they had they were depressed and suicidal, or they had a relative who was, or they lost somebody by suicide, and they had a question about that. So it's 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 very therapeutic for me to to speak and 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 do my best to help people in those situations. Well, with all you do and all the people you help, in closing, what would be one message of hope that you'd like to share with people listening? Well, the, I, I think I said it earlier, um, with time and treatment, things will get better. And what I recommend, because people say, well, so say you know somebody who's a depressed family member. What do you suggest? Well, first of all, I would get a mental health evaluation. Find out, is it bipolar? Is it schizoaffective disorder? I would also have a physical, because some physical ailments present as, let's say, depression. If you're severely anemic, it could have the same symptoms as you are severely depressed. So get a mental workup, a physical workup. And then if medication is indicated, there's a new cheek swab DNA test. 
and they test your DNA against a list of, let's say, antidepressants, and they pick out the one or two that would work best with your metabolism. So there's less experimentation going on, tapering off, going on, tapering off. So uh, bottom line, get evaluated, and if medication indicated, get the cheek swab test, make sure you get a medication that's going to work really well with your metabolism. Mm -hmm. and, and don't be scared to talk about it, because silence kills. You know, people will say all the time, so-and-so died by suicide, had no indication. No, no, he never said anything. I didn't notice anything. Um, chances are, though, he or she was throwing off hints. You just didn't know what to listen for. It's like we train dogs, German Shepherds, and people say, the dog bit me, never gave any indication he was going to bite me. Oh, yes, he did. You just didn't know what to look for. The dog freezes, eyes go flat, ears go back. That's like three things a dog has done in a row to, to say, just don't come any closer. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then they get bitten and they go, he never, didn't give me an indication. Yes, he did. He threw three hints at you and you, you had no idea what you were looking at. So, Well, it sounds like if you talk about it, there's hope and it can get better. Yeah, my job is not therapy. I'm yeah. not a clinician. My job is to plant seeds of hope. That's, that's really the way you save somebody. Plant a seed of hope. You know, if you have a friend and you have a conversation and they're depressed, wait a day to call back hey man just checking in see how things are because it shows you care does that make sense not mm -hmm. just one conversation but you're following up say mm -hmm. listen i you know that day you're in a bad spot uh, where are you now and that that that's enough right there to save somebody they may just open up and go i'm still depressed and i don't know what to do so at which point you should say okay we need to go you and i to a mental health facility and have you evaluated today and if they allow you to do that, that's ideal. Got it. Well, thank you for the time, Frank. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's my big idea. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. So, well, and you know, I've I, we talked about before we got on the air was um, I've made I've reinvented myself several times. I was an insurance salesman married to the wrong woman. Then I became a comedian, and then when the clubs and then radio. And then when the clubs closed, uh, a corporate comedian. And then when the recession hit and people, you know, couldn't pay me the same kind of money just to do comedy, they said, well, you got to have some message. And so then I reinvented myself again as a funny spe a speaker who was funny, not just a funny speaker. So it's, it's one of those things where if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be flexible enough. In the COVID, in the pandemic, um, I don't do as much marketing for my mental health speaking. I do all, almost all my marketing as a TEDx coach because I can do that from my living room. So I reinvented myself again. I, I took on my LinkedIn profile. I went from suicide prevention speaker here, TEDx coach here to TEDx coach and suicide prevention yeah. speaker. But sometimes people, you know, they just get locked in and they, they can't, you know, but I'm a speaker. Well, you know what? Nobody's booking speakers right now. You better find no. something else. So if people do want to find out more about you, where's the best place to find you? Well, I'm in the WITSEC program, um, so I really can't tell you where I am right now. Uh, <laughs> no, if you go to The Mental Health Comedian, TheMentalHealthComedian.com, and if you go to your YourTEDxCoach.com, YourTEDxCoach, and if you okay. go there, there's a PDF, a free one, and the title is The Six Things You Can Do to Kill Your Chances of Landing a TEDx Talk. Nice. Six things to avoid. Yeah. Most people tell you how to get one. First, I tell you how, how, how you can kill your chances. And then we talk about, you know, how do you get one? Nice. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on.
Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I also hope that you'll subscribe to the Idea Climbing podcast and rate us on iTunes. Visit ideaclimbing.com to learn more about idea climbing and hear more episodes about mentoring, marketing, and big ideas.